0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Lukas Dietrich about his first book, Writing Across the Color Line: U.S. Print Culture and the Rise of Ethnic Literature, 1877-1920, published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2020. Lukas Dietrich is an adjunct professor of humanities at Lesley University and a visiting lecturer of English at Framingham State University. He's also a council member and former president of the New England American Studies Association. His work combines interest in American literature, print culture, and critical ethnic studies. Hello, Lucas. Hello. Uh, thank you for joining me today, and congratulations on your first
1: book. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, your book discusses not only the development of ethnic literatures in the U.S. in the 19th century, but also how ethnic literature shaped the development of publishing venues, periodicals in particular. You start the book with the story of Zipkala's publication in the Atlantic Monthly. Would you briefly describe how publication space for ethnic writers developed in the 19th century?
1: Um... Yeah, so, uh, you know, and the, the book is certainly interested in that sort of push and pull uh, between the authors and the publishers, right? So I've been interested in how, especially in the late 19th century, uh, authors of color are starting to publish literary fiction and literary writing and to have it published in um really mainstream venues like national uh, publication venues and and trade commercial uh, publishing venues that had a national audience. And so, um, you know, one thing that's happening in the in the mid 19th century is you'll have um, smaller ethnic publications pop up that are Um, really growing out of the ethnic group. So you have like the Cherokee Phoenix or the Christian Recorder as these sort of examples of um, almost like niche publication within the ethnic community. And they have a very powerful voice and they're, you know, they're influential within that community, but they they have trouble um, continuing to publish over long spans of time because they... Um, you know, they need funding, uh, for distribution and print publication. And so there, there are a lot of ethnic newspapers on the rise, especially, uh, toward the end of the century. Um, but one of the shifts that my book is tracking is, is sort of what happens when, uh, multi-ethnic authors, authors of color start to, um, really target and to be accepted by, uh, commercial trade publishers. And so I'm looking at, uh, big, well-known publishers, and many of them are still around to this day, like Lippincott, Houghton Mifflin, The Atlantic Monthly. Um, You know, you had mentioned uh, that I sort of opened with this anecdote about Zikala Shah, and she's an American Indian writer, and she has a series of three autobiographical essays that get published in The Atlantic Monthly, and it's the first months of the 20th century. It's January 1900, uh, February and March. And, um, and so this to me was like, um, this interesting turn of the century moment where the Atlantic monthly as like the venue of literary publication is saying, uh, we want to recognize like an indigenous voice that's not being translated, translated or described through an ethnographer and to, to elevate it. Um, and in some of their advertising materials at the time, they're they're putting her right at the front of the advertising materials. Um, and yet, meanwhile, at the same time, you know, they were publishing serially this novel that was very exotic descriptions of um, of American Indians. And even in those advertisements for zitkala they're really exoticizing her as well, like really playing up um, her her like Indianness. And and so there's this very fraught dynamic and there's a lot of compromises at work when these authors enter these situations. And so I was interested in in sort of what did they have to to give up or what type of compromises did they have to make to reach a national audience? And, you know, how was their work edited or or what similarities are there, um, you know, between the different writers um, as they really start to say, you know, I can use literary writing to try to reach a, a big national American audience and readership. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, so, in your book, you describe the writers you analyze as ethnic writers or writers of color. And we already mentioned zitkala Shah and uh, in in the previous um, in the previous uh, question. But who are the uh, other main characters of your project? What material did you use as the main source of analysis and investigation?
1: So the the chapters do uh, progress as a sort of series of case studies. So um, the, the first chapter after the introduction is focusing on uh, Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton. And she was, I would really describe her as a Californian writer, um, but she's, you know, she could also be described as a Mexican-American or Hispanic author who um, who grew up in California uh, at the time of the Mexican-American War. And she's really coming of age at the time of the Mexican-American War. And so she is seeing her um, her nationality and her ethnicity shift within her own lifetime as that land is sort of absorbed into the United States. And she ends up marrying a, an American army general, um, Henry S. Burton. And so that's why she gets this sort of hybrid last name, Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton and um and she published uh she published a play and two different novels and these are sort of seen as the um the first sort of mexican american novels in english and in english is significant and again that goes back to trying to like target um you know a a national american audience or u.s audience um this the second chapter is looking at uh Charles W. Chestnut, and he is a, uh, a African American author who grows up in North Carolina, but sort of splits his time between North Carolina and Ohio. And um, he has his family migrates between the two as he's growing up, and they're actually they actually leave uh, North Carolina during the Civil War and then they return during Reconstruction. And then when Reconstruction is ending and segregation is on the rise, Chestnut decides to leave once again. And so there again, you have someone whose ethnic identity and sense of self is really deeply intertwined with these like historical shifts in like territory and um, within the United States. And he, he was a light-skinned African-American. His His parents were free people of color and he was sort of capable of passing as white or would be perceived as white um, by many people, but he, he never took that on and he always refused it um, and, and, and insisted on identifying as an African-American. Um, there, in, the, in the third chapter, I'm looking at an Irish-American journalist named Finley Peter Dunn, and he becomes almost like a control for the book project as a whole, to say, if we want to think about like white ethnic identity, like whether that would be like, you know, Jewish immigrants or Italian immigrants or Irish immigrants, um, then, then like how, how far do they go into this um, category of being persons of color? And, and we know that, um, you know, Irish Americans would have um, on their, on their birth certificates, they would be labeled as colored. And so he becomes a sort of test case of uh of what happens with that white ethnic identity, and one thing that he is able to do is sort of walk that boundary a little bit to that he's allowed to sort of have the whiteness and he's also allowed to sort of criticize it um, and uh, And then in the final chapter, I look at um, a Chicago publisher really that's a c. McClurg which is not to be confused with uh, S.S. McClure, a a publisher at the same time. Uh, But A.C. McClure was a publisher in Chicago, and they published W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk and a couple of his other books. And they published um, Sui Sin Farr's Mrs. Spring Fragrance, which is one of the first um, Chinese-American books of fiction in the United States. And so they, as a publisher, they also published some of the early uh, Jewish American novels and fiction. And so one thing I sort of found there was that one of the editors at McClure as a publishing house was interested in, in publishing multi-ethnic fiction. Um, and there again, you get this sort of, uh, the hybridity of the authors where Sui Sin Far is this, um, she's, she's Chinese American, but her father was an English merchant. And, um, who was sort of like a missionary into China and then they migrated to Canada and she herself lived all over North America. She lived in Jamaica and she lived on the West coast and she lived in Boston and her birth name was Edith Eaton and she took on the name Sui Sinfar. and her sister was also an author and took on a Japanese pen name. And so one thing I start to see, um, in the sort of like multi-ethnic scope of the book is that there are these really um, strong comparisons to be made across ethnic boundaries when you have an author like Ruiz de Burton, who has this hybrid name, and then you have Edith Eden Suisin-Farr, and, and then you have Chestnut who is perceived as white but refuses to pass. And even Finlay Peter Dunn um, was born Peter Dunn and he took on Finley. As his uh, as his mother's maiden name and took it on almost as a sort of ethnic identifier to say like um, I really strongly identify with like, the Irish aspect of my heritage um, and how there's a sort of resistance to um, you know being folded into whiteness there um, And so uh, and so that that was something that interests me throughout is how does that how are these authors all, in different positions but they have to rely on similar strategies um, in order to sort of again to sort of approach uh, a big audience and to have more of an impact with their work
0: i really find this idea about hybrid names uh, quite compelling because on the one hand uh, it does um, imply uh, this kind of uh, gesture to uh, incorporate some identities in your maybe writing persona, so to speak, if we can uh, put it that way. On the other hand, it also uh, communicates something about a language itself, that a language um, does contain this kind of, uh, if we can even say images, right, how uh, an identity can be constructed and an identity can be transmitted uh, through the names which are included uh, into actual um, into actual names of the writers. <laughs> um, so, um, I'm interested in those stories and narratives that ethnic writers offer um, and how uh, they different from what we usually describe as mainstream uh, writers or well-published writers. How did these two narratives interact and overlap, shaping each other? You did uh, uh, mention that you cover some materials from uh, very well-known publications or very uh, well-known uh, venues. And um, those venues were primarily for, so to speak, mainstream writers. But what do uh, the uh, writers of color or ethnic writers uh, offer in terms of their narratives and how those narratives uh, probably intervene with the narratives offered by um, mainstream writers?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, one thing that happens with um, a lot of the authors that I'm looking at is that they are almost doing a like a very subtle satire or parody of the of these sort of mainstream styles and they they realized that um, you know there was there was sort of this interest at the time in local what's called local color or regionalist fiction so uh, alongside like realism and naturalism that's happening in the you know 1880s 1890s 1900s there was a, there was a real interest in the different regions of the United States, like New England writers, Southern writers, Midwestern writers. And part of this is because the United States was growing and was becoming this global superpower. So there was this sense that they were like losing their regional identity. And so there was a there was a sort of fascination with regional fiction that often involved like really heavy dialect being written into the fiction and oftentimes it's really challenging for like a 21st century reader to go back and look at it um i sometimes say it would be almost like trying to read like text language for us now is there was this big fad for like dialect um and and regional culture and so one of the things that almost all of the authors i'm looking at do is they realize that Um, all of these white authors are kind of taking our culture and writing it and they're writing the dialect for us. And they say, well, like I can do that, but I can have like a different message, right? I could sort of be giving a different message than they're giving. So um, one example would be with uh, Charles Chestnut that he writes his first book that he publishes called the conjure woman in 1899 is um, it's a sort of, thinly veiled uh parody of uh joel chandler harris's uncle remus stories and these uncle remus stories were essentially the brer rabbit stories that we still have like disney's song of the south um but these were the, the the brer rabbit folk tales about this like tricky rabbit who who could kind of escape any sort of trouble that he was into And that was a real folktale within the African-American community that Joel Chandler Harris had sort of taken, appropriated, repackaged. And he was selling it, and it was hugely, hugely popular. And one thing about those stories is that they're being told, the folktales themselves within the fiction is being told by um, a, a formerly enslaved person, like a freedman. And so this Friedman narrator is telling these stories about like the Old South and the Antebellum Plantation. And he's telling these stories about this animal um, character, Brer Rabbit, who no matter how much trouble he's in, he can always escape. He can always get out of it. And the the main tone of those stories is that the Old South was not that bad, that the plantation was like a big happy family. And, and everyone was happy to be there and to get along with each other. And what Chestnut does, um, is he takes that style and he has a Friedman narrator who's telling these stories of the old South. And so he takes that style and the dialect fiction and the content, the message is, um, much more tragic, much more serious. And so when he has stories, he has um, he has one character who um, one character who's an enslaved character who's trying to be uh, reunited with his wife. They've been separated on the plantation and, and he tries to hide and he gets sort of turned into a tree. It's like this magical power that allows him to turn into a tree so that he can escape and meet with his wife. And then um, the, the tree ends up being cut down and is, it's milled into lumber. And um, so, and this is just one of the stories with chestnut stories. Another person like gets turned into the vines. Um, some of the other characters are eating dirt. And, you know, one of the characters is, is steals a ham from the, uh, from the plantation owner, the slave master, enslaver and is forced to like wear the hand, like uh, it's chained to his neck. And so it's, it's very, um, there's a very sort of dark content here that is saying that, um, you know, is really commenting on, on how terrible slavery was. And, um, you know, with the, the bodies being turned into like the raw material of racial capitalism and, um, but the the incredible thing is that Houghton Mifflin had published uh, Joel Chandler Harris and Uncle Remus. They were the publishers of the Uncle Remus stories. And Chestnut managed to get them to publish his, his stories and to package them the same way. And so readers would have bought these books from the same publisher uh, with a similar cover. And the readers, uh, a lot of the evidence shows that the readers didn't necessarily notice the difference or that some readers could and some readers wouldn't. And so um, that becomes another thing for the authors to negotiate, is to consider if if no readers are getting this, then do I keep doing it? And, and is this making any type of difference? Um, and that was one of the, re- the questions that really drove my project, was a lot of other scholarly critics were aware that... Um, Ethnic authors at the time were making this kind of subversive, satirical maneuver. And what I really wanted to know with my research was, um, were the editors aware? Was the audience aware? Um, like, how was this marketed? How popular was it? What impact did it have? Um, and so that that was kind of where a lot of my research intervened in the more like scholarly conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, earlier you mentioned uh, that uh, you were also interested in how much uh, the uh, ethnic writers had to compromise uh, in order to be published. So that's, my, uh, that's one question. And another one uh, is um, about um, uh, editors. Uh, to what extent were these works edited? And if uh, you had a chance to trace those uh, changes or edits, um, what they can reveal about um, those uh, emphases that the editors wanted to uh, include uh, in these publications?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, with, um, you know, to go back to Chestnut just very quickly with this, but he, he had wanted to publish like a more... Um, uh, a more contemporary novel about a a mixed-race protagonist and to have it be a little bit more openly political. And he had pitched that to Houghton Mifflin um, in, like, the early 1890s. And they said, uh, you know, we're not really – we don't really like this and we think you need to keep writing for a bit and, and publish more stories before you're really ready to be a Houghton Mifflin author. Um, and then when they came back to him and they wanted a book, they wanted the, um, his conjure stories, they wanted like the uncle Remus stories. And so he, he made the decision and he said right away, like, yeah, I'd be happy to publish that. So he made the decision as the, as an author to say, um, I will do more of those style of stories. And he wrote many, uh, he wrote, uh, a number of those stories very quickly to to fill out the book collection, right? He had some of them published in magazines, but he wrote more of them to like answer the editor's um, sort of proposal for the book. And then one thing he did was once that book was published and he was in as like a Houghton Mifflin author, then he publishes another book of of short stories that's sort of pushing the envelope, And he publishes uh, his third book with Houghton Mifflin is the novel that that he had originally pitched to them. And so he kind of, he kind of uses that as an in, and he kind of, you know, leverages it to go more in the direction that he wants to go. And, and so his, his authorial, his style as an author and his techniques are, are evolving. Um, you know, other, the editors, they always know, they are always aware that the, the texts are critical. Like the Houghton Mifflin editor, um, it, it wouldn't have been that he was not aware that it was a parody. Like he understood that it was a parody and he was sort of in on it. Um, and, um, you know, but it it wasn't really as successful as they hoped as this criticism, um, other like W E B Du Bois, when he's working on the souls of black folk, I mean, he is, he's essentially already famous. He's, he's a Harvard graduate. He's already published in the Atlantic and in all sorts of periodicals and, um, they, his editors at AC McClure, they try to make a couple of adjustments. They want him to tone back on the language in a few spots. And, um, and the, and he refuses, he says, no, I want to keep it. And it, you, there are letters between, um, Du Bois and his editor, um, uh, Francis Granger Brown at A.C. McClurg. And, uh, and Brown says, I tried to tone back on this passage where you talk about the Philippines and, um, and you're talking about uh, Puerto Rico. And basically it's a comment on U.S. imperialism as we like expand, as the nation expanded into Hawaii and into the Philippines. Um, but if you go into the book, the passage is there. It's still there. And so Du Bois um, it, insisted that it stayed and it was allowed to stay. Um, you know, but then, you know, and then again, meanwhile, with Suisin far who's also writing with McClurg, uh, she's lesser known and she's, you know, and she's a woman author and she's, um, she's a journalist. She does a lot of periodical writing. And so she had wanted to publish a novel that has, is lost and, um, and they, they refused the novel or... or it's kind of unknown what happens to the novel exactly, and they ask her to publish short stories. And um, there's a there's a scholar at University of North or University of Connecticut, Martha Cutter, who does a really great article about her interactions with editors and how the editors always say they like her little stories. And she she was herself petite, and so. They they sort of say like we want you to do a collection of your little stories and we're not sure you're like a big author for a novel, and so there was this way where um, a lot of women writers um, get sort of put into the realm of periodicals and doing short j- journalism and short journalistic pieces, and uh, and she she made her career as like a freelance writer and a stenographer. And and so she got one book together, but she wasn't really in control, entirely in control of um, of what they were, you know, what they were asking for when they requested it. So it, it depends. It depends on who the author is and what the situation is. But, um, you know, one of my findings was that the editors and the publishers were surprisingly supportive. They were more they were more aware of the, the satire and the subversive qualities and when they decided to say yes to an author they um they they did a pretty good job marketing it they didn't really like overpower the text in the editorial process um they might like cut off the relationship abruptly and end it but when they're working with the authors when they make that decision they they do a quite a good job with it and um really what ends up limiting that relationship is the readership and the audience so when when the book doesn't sell or it gets critically um, panned or it bonds um, and that's one of the things that keeps happening and I think it's actually um, a, a good way to think about what's happening with the sort of multi-ethnic literature in general at this era of like the 1890s early 1900s is that the editors see this potential and they see, that uh, American culture is kind of moving in this direction, so they're trying to support it um, but the the readership is sort of actually rejecting it and so then it sort of um, doesn't like reemerge until until later on in the 20th century.
0: Mm-hmm. So you primarily focus on uh, 1877, 1920. any specific reason why this time period and uh, how does this time period? differ from i don't know 1930 1950s um, i imagine the difference is crucial but still why 1977 1920
1: um, well yeah so 1877 is like a, kind of the marker at the end of reconstruction and so uh, you're kind of coming out of reconstruction toward the turn of the century and you know you're starting to see like the ri- the rise of segregation after reconstruction um again i was i was kind of went into the project being interested in this this being this era where the the us is sort of on the rise as like a global superpower and like what's what's happening in the culture leading up to that um you know i think that uh there, <sighs> There are like these, there are these interesting questions of, of periodizing any type of like literature and saying when is early or late. And there were kind of these questions about um like like what is early African American literature? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you have writers that just go all the way back, right? And that's one thing I was trying to be careful with to say, um, you know, you always have African American writers. Uh, so, you know, one way to isolate, like the dynamic that I'm looking at is to say, I was really interested in what happens when they start to be published by mainstream trade commercial publishers. And, and so that's really happening in this era. And it really is not until the late 19th century that you start to see that. And, and part of that too, is that the, the trade publishing itself is evolving. Right. So in order to have like a a national distribution, I I mean, you need to have like national railroads and transportation. And so, you know, America is like expanding as a territory to the West Coast into the 1890s. And so there's also this kind of uh, like solidification of the U.S.'s national boundaries in this era. Where the the map that we know is like the continental forty eight states, and then the um, and then Hawaii and Alaska, that's taking shape at this time, and so um, and so the U.S. is kind of like solidifying its borders, and um, and meanwhile taking in massive waves of immigrants, right? So the the Immigration Act. The major Immigration Act in the United States is 1924. And so throughout this period, there are just massive waves of immigrants coming in and changing population dynamics. And, um, and so on the tail end of my project is when they say we need to change the way this immigration process is working. Uh, and of course I should say that there are, um, you know, the one exception to that, the one major exception to that is the Chinese Exclusion Acts and, and anti-Chinese uh, immigrant acts which date back to the 1880s. Um, so so I think, uh, you know, for me, there's these like large historical processes happening where the, the nation is kind of taking shape like a modern U.S. In, in the way that we know it. And then also that the the publishing of... American writers of color in terms of like literary fiction or literary quality writing is happening at this time. And, um, and and I think that, you know, part of, with the 1920s and, um, and ending the project in in 1920 is, um, you know, by the time world war one ends and by the time, you start to see the the rise of like the Harlem Renaissance in 1919 is there there is this sort of like crossover happening in the 1920s where uh white readers become much more interested in like African American writing and the and authors do too as well and so like the authors major white authors start mimicking the tactics of the writers of color. This is sort of like the dialect of modernism idea. But, um, so for me by the 1920s, like the crossover is starting to really happen. And, um, and so to me, this is, this was kind of this in between period, things were really changing and shifting. And, um, and there was this like sort of crossover that was happening. And so, you know, I think that the dates, like dating it exactly, is always a little bit an abstract process, but for me, it, it's happening in those decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about um, uh, readers' expectations. Uh, you uh, did mention uh, already something about uh, how readers to some extent shaped what was published. Uh, so, how, but how did ethnic writers shape the American readership?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reading process and the reception aspect is um, it's so challenging uh, to to get a grasp on or get to get a handle on because reading is just such a mysterious process in general. And so you have, you know, evidence of reading is so tricky, like you have published reviews and then you could have someone could write a memoir and they could like talk about. Their reading experience, um, and you have sales. You have how many books were bought, or you could have like library records. But trying to get a gauge on on readership is a, is a really challenging thing. Um, and you know there are all these interesting examples in like scholarship on reception of when readers are doing things that are not what's expected of them. It's that, that's always kind of interesting. Is when someone does when a reader interprets a book a way that they're like not supposed to. And oftentimes that's a really like positive relationship is when people, uh, a lot of times the reader gets sort of glorified for being able to do anything they want with the text. And, and for me, one of the things I kept finding was like the reader was shutting this down. Like the readers were just white readers were like not ready to hear these authors. And, um, so, uh, So, uh, you know, part of what I'm outlining is there's this dynamic where the readers, if there's this subversive quality to this literature, or there's a parody or or a satire there, the readers often, they just don't see it, right? They're just kind of like, they're not aware of it. They're not ready to recognize it. Or if they do recognize it, then they become very critical. And they sort of have this like harsh backlash. And they, they really, and they start to say, this isn't even literature, right? Is that's this always, if it's political, it's not literature. And so, so that's this sort of like, um, uh, there's this sort of double vision that, that, that the predominantly white, like sort of mainstream audience has that reacts to this fiction. Um, but like at the same time, uh, these books they're distributed all over the country right and some of them it may be like 600 copies 800 copies some of them are getting 4 5000 copies Du Bois so as a black folk is like 30000 and then it moves into 60000 by like the mid 20th century so they're they're getting distributed and they're getting produced in quality volumes quality books that are are going to survive right so um it's not a local niche publication um it's it's like a really quality book that's being distributed very widely and that survives and so one of the one of the sort of amazing things you start to see is that these later generations of authors become so influenced and so i think that is one of the really like more hopeful things to take away is the way that um you know certain audiences are there and sometimes they're not even they're not there at the same time right so so when you get into the harlem renaissance of the 1920s they're all looking back to Du Bois and looking back to chestnut and um you know and uh, finley peter dunn this irish american author i mean he is actually very popular at the time but he is influencing he influences langston hughes um, and he influences uh, Fuse Fixico. And so he's having an influence on these other ethnic writers that are doing this like sort of political satire in the in the same style. And so you start to see um, all of these influences popping up later on. And I think that was really interesting to me was that even while the the predominant reaction was to criticize and sort of shut down this writing that, Um, the authors and the publishers together by like producing these books and distributing them, they have this much more long-term impact. And, um, and that impact is very real and is, is, um, you know, sort of experimental sort of foundational for like a lot of the changes we see happening, um, you know, more into the mid 20th century.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, Would you talk a little bit about Bret Hart's poem, Plain Language from Truthful James, and uh, about how it was perceived and understood? I found this story particularly fascinating.
1: Oh, yeah. So this is, um, I think this story is like, this is, a few people have talked about this. So this wasn't my own uh, original scholarship to know about this story. But Bret Hart, um, sort of another sort of Californian writer, and he writes this poem called "Plain Language from Truthful James," and it's about a um, a card game. Some some characters are playing poker out west, and um, and what happens is that the the narrator of the poem, who is like Truthful James, he and his friend are they're cheating. They have uh, they have extra. I think they have extra bowers, which is like a jack in, uh, in the, you know, in the game that they're playing and they're cheating. And then when they, they mistakenly like both lay down the same card, which should not be in the deck twice. And when they get caught for that, they blame uh, a Chinese immigrant player at the table and they attack him and kick him out and say that he is cheating. And so, the the poem was meant to be a criticism of the sort of white narrator, mm-hmm. and the title of the poem, the "Plain Language from Truthful James," is again this sort of like satire, this sort of subversion, where this is not plain language, he is not truthful. <laughs> but what happened with the reception and the reading of the poem was that throughout the poem they use derogatory language against the Chinese person who they're trying to accuse of cheating. And they say, he's a, a, the heathen Chinese whose ways are dark. And, and so this like racist language is then taken up by, um, anti-immigrant, like know nothing activists. And so all of these, uh, people who are very anti-Chinese immigrant, they, use the language of the poem, and it becomes this, like, slogan for them to say Chinese immigrants should not be allowed in the country, is that these are heathen Chinese, their ways are dark. And so you have this, um, you have this misreading of the poem and a misreading of its subversion, and then it becomes extremely popular for something that is, is completely against Bret Hart's intent. And he himself acknowledged, he said, I, like, I wish I hadn't even written it, um, you know, if I had known it was going to be taken up in this way. And um, again, that became a, a sort of very interesting example for me because a, a lot of people had known about the, the body of literature that I'm talking about and that um, writers of color were taking on these regionalist styles and sort of satirizing them and um and criticizing them by by using them and reappropriating them. And so a lot of the criticism the scholarly criticism that I was reading going into this was saying well look at how look at how brilliant this is look at how subversive this is. And so one of my questions became like did did anyone know that? Did anyone understand it, right? Or were people just misreading it in the same way that the plain language from Truthful James was being misread? And so, and so again, I kind of wanted to go see, like, were the editors aware? Were the readers aware? Um, and and kind of digging around for any type of clues about how the text was actually being understood and whether it was really accomplishing uh, the goals that I think I, I think we we can sort of say the authors had certain goals, right? You can't say exactly what their intentions were, but we, I mean, we know that Chestnut was trying to do something very different from Joel Chandler Harris with Brer Rabbit. Um, and so, you know, did readers pick up on that or not? And, and a lot of times, it, I'm encountering the same dynamic as the Bret Hart poem where, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like they really did. It doesn't seem like they really did understand it.
0: So you did uh, describe some um um influences uh of uh, ethnic writers on the writers from the 20th century for example uh but uh, would you offer any kind of comment on the influence i mean on the uh, um on the um uh, ethnic writers from the 19th century on the ethnic writers or writers of color in the 21st century
1: um You're saying from them into the 21st century.
0: 21st century, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of this work was uh, has been sort of recovered, right? There's this term for like recovery, which is not that the you know not to say discovery, but to say that um, you know Charles Chestnut was relatively known in, in the early 1900s, and then he was not very well known for a long time. And, you know, in the 1990s and and into the past 30 years, uh, he's becoming more well known, you know, especially within scholarly circles, like he gets taught in college. And so there's this sort of recovery of these writers and almost all of the authors I'm looking at have been sort of recovered in this way. So, Um, So, you know, Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton uh, gets recovered in the in the 1990s as this example of early Mexican American fiction. Chestnut gets recovered um, as this like sort of pre Harlem Renaissance like proto um, very high literary fiction, Uh, and then um, Sinfar has been recovered, and so her work was. Um not really directly influential. Like, you know, the, the Asian American literary uh tradition um you know follows a a, a a different path with the sort of immigration laws as well. Um Min Song, a professor at Boston College, has a good book about this and about how when the when the immigration restrictions change in the 1960s, you get this sort of new generation of writers. And So you know, it's tough to say. I don't think those writers in the 60s, 70s were looking back to and Far. But again, her work is getting recovered in the late 1980s, 1990s. And so, um, you know, this was that was the era that was sort of called the Canon Wars, right? Is there was this um, there were these arguments among academics to say uh, we need to listen to these voices that are not uh, strictly Uh, Moby Dick or Nathaniel Hawthorne or Shakespeare and to say we need to open up and we need to think about, actively think about um, if there are authors that are being excluded from the sort of, uh, you know, canon, then, you know, who, who are they and what type of value does their work have to offer? And so (laughs) for me, it was interesting because like I... Um, you know, I, as an undergrad was being taught this literature, like I, I was taught chestnut in an American literature survey. And then I was taught him again during my master's degree, like he was on the syllabus. And so I, I had sort of always been interested in that through coursework and course reading. And so to me, I'm sort of like following uh, like, you know, in my own like career trajectory, I'm like following in the wake of that recovery is I don't really have to make the case, you know, maybe a little bit I do, but I don't really have to make the case for why we value this writing. Um, I think like that case has been made if, and if you want to disagree with it, then I'm like not really going to pick up there, but, uh, but, um, I can sort of take the fact that that a lot of people agree that there's value in this literature. And then I can say, um, well, I want to do some more detailed scholarship on it because I mean, like, um, you know, with, with the book history aspect of what I'm doing and like digging into the textual production and the reception, uh, you know, if you try to do that on, on Moby Dick or Nathaniel Hawthorne, like there's so many sources that are doing this like textual work of, what was the relationship like with the editor? And so I went to look at W. E. B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, like one of the most well-known canonical African American texts of the 20th century. And uh, almost all of the scholars had had gotten the they didn't know who the editor was. They had misnamed the editor as his as his father. And there were there were two editions of the Souls of Black Folk. Early on, there was like a first printing. And then Du Bois had wanted to make changes before the second printing because he noticed that things in the introduction and in the final chapter that um, that he hadn't he hadn't seen the proof copies, and so it was kind of incredible to me that some of those um, like textual basic textual elements of like what edition are we looking at, which are they're so well established for um, these canonical authors. That I could like almost stumble upon um, you know pretty significant uh, aspects of like textual production that that were not known about the souls of black folk. like i couldn't I couldn't really believe that I was the one seeing that um, because to me that it's such an important work. and um, but again, I think it just relates to the fact that um, it, it's it's really not until the past 20, 30 years. That people in in the academic world are really starting to pay attention to these writers.
0: So, uh, do you have to? Uh, do you have a chance to uh, teach this material to your students? And if yes, what's their response?
1: Um, so, I I've taught surveys of American literature where um, you know this ends up being like one week or like a week and a half and um, and so that that's kind of an interesting uh, situation to be in because oftentimes with the survey that I'm teaching, I'm trying to cover this range, um, you know, like 150 years uh, in 15 weeks. And so it's always kind of interesting to say um, to the students in that course that like this material here that occupies this um, small section of the course, this is what I wrote my entire book on, and this is what I'm an expert in. Um, I've had students who are, um, you know, I think with, with some of the dialect, it's really challenging. The dialect is it's kind of off-putting to readers. Uh, you kind of have to struggle through it. Mm-hmm. And and that would be in in some, a good portion of the chestnut. It's all of the Finley-Peter Dunn. Um, but so I, I try to steer clear of that and I try to recommend or, or assign students some of the work that is not so thick with dialect. And so ch- like if people are asking for recommendations from the book and I say like, Oh, I recommend, um, Chestnut, the wife of his youth or the house behind the cedars. And those are very readable and Zikala Sha, the stories that I open with, uh, American Indian stories; those are very readable, and the students can, um, with with her work, it's these autobiographical essays. So the students can relate. It's it's sort of this very um, short essay coming of age story, and and it also sort of um, brings in and plays on uh some like western religious elements like there are these apples that she's being taken away and it's almost like this garden of eden scene so so one thing i've done when i've tried to teach it is i try to or or if i ever recommend text that i'm looking at is uh, i say you know maybe don't go straight into the dialogue but maybe look at some of those uh, those other ones that i think are a little bit more readable and a little bit more accessible
0: So I understand probably after you uh, publish your first book, you would like to take a break, but uh, do you have any current projects or do you have any projects in mind that you would like to work on?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually thinking about uh, going backwards in time rather than forward and going back more into the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I... I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind right now because I'm, I'm reading a lot of like secondary criticism and scholarly criticism. And um, another thing that's kind of nice for me personally is right now I live, um, you know, between Boston and Worcester. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to. Uh, it's not really happening right now during the pandemic, but I have I have access to a lot of the, the libraries that are here and, and to the Antiquarian Society. And so I think, you know, right now I'm trying to keep a, keep keep the keep the ideas and the creative process going with that. As I think about like what archives can I use to um, to to get more into um, a second project, but I I have been leaning towards moving back earlier into the 1800s. And what I'm what I'm seeing a lot of people do that is really fascinating is um, to sh- you know, for me to shift outside of that mainstream national trade, and and to think about, um, you know, is there some of that niche publication where I could I could look into that and dig up uh, some history that is uh, just sort of not necessarily known, mm-hmm. right? It's like um, really seeing a lot in um, like Derek Spires, the practice of citizenship. Um, the Colored Conventions Project, where they're saying like there's there's all this history that um, really still needs to be recovered. and And so, uh, I'm trying to look for what would be a space for me to say i'm going to I'm going to try to recover some of that history, and I want to make sure that i'm not um, that I'm doing something a little bit new or finding something that uh, you know not someone else is looking at right now. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. so, that's sort of where I'm at with it. I'm not fully decided, but that's sort of the direction I see myself going. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, uh, I wish you good luck. uh, And uh, let's hope that the current situation will change soon because this, this statement, well, uh, I can't do much really at this moment is some sort of a theme right now. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Lucas. Uh, Thank you so much for your research and for your book uh, that contributes to our understanding of The Rise of Ethnic Literature in American Literature. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Natalia. It was good talking with you.
0: Today, I spoke with uh, Lucas Dittrich about his book, Writing Across the Color Line, U.S. Print Culture and the Rise of Ethnic Literature, 1877-1920, published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.